Hello, this is Dr. Pengxin Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Horizon. Here is a summary of the February 2021 issue of the journal. The first original article is titled Right Bundle Branch Block Ventricular Tachycardia in Arrhythmogenic Right Ventricular Cardiomyopathy More Commonly Originates from the Right Ventricle Criteria for Identifying Chamber of Origin. The authors studied 110 consecutive patients with ARVC and VT who underwent VT mapping and ablation. They found 19 patients, or 17%, had 26 RBBB VTs. Among them, 11 or 58% had 16 RBBB VTs from the RV, and 9 patients, or 47%, had 10 RBBB VTs originating from the LV, with one patient demonstrating both. RBBB VT from RV most commonly had an early precordial QRS transition at V2 and V3, with superiorly and typically leftward directed frontal plane axis, whereas all 10 VTs from LV had RBBB morphology with positive R waves to V5 or V6 and the rightward axis in six VTs characteristics of basal lateral origin. These findings show that precordial R wave transition and the frontal plane axis can be used to identify the anticipated chamber of origin or of RBBB VT in patients with ARVC. The next article is titled Effects of 60 Hz Notch Filtering on Local Abnormal Ventricular Activities. The authors studied 110 local abnormal ventricular activities, or LAVA, potentials recorded from 13 patients during VT ablation. Notch filtering significantly affected the LAVA morphology and reduced their amplitude. At least two high-frequency components were introduced into the lava by filtering at 33 sites. The area under continuous lava was reduced by 28%. The duration of continuous lava was reduced by 12%. The authors concluded that notch filtering can distort the lava by reducing their amplitude, changing their morphology, and shortening their duration, leading to potential false positives and negatives. Mitigating the 60 Hz noise should focus on eliminating the source of the noise, not applying notch filtering. Up next is right bundle branch block type white QRS complex tachycardia with a reversed RS complex in lead V6. Development and validation of electrocardiographic differentiation criteria. Differentiation of SVT with a RBBB pattern from VT is difficult, particularly when the R over S ratio in the V6 is below 1.0. The authors studied ECG parameters from 111 consecutive patients. They found that the diagnostic accuracy of previous uh, criteria was only modest. The authors developed a new criterion using RS over QRS ratio, which was defined as a ratio of the interval from the onset of the QRS complex to their nadir of the S-wave divided by the QRS width in lead V6. 
a cutoff value of the RS over QRS ratio of greater than 0.41 differentiated VT from SVT with a high diagnostic accuracy. When tested in a prospective population with vascular VT, the diagnostic accuracy of the criteria was maintained. This new criterion distinguished VT from SVT in RBPP pattern white QRS complex tachycardia with a reversed R-S complex in lead V6 and was particularly useful for the differential diagnosis of fascicular VT from RBPP pattern SVT. Next paper's mapping and ablation of clinical spontaneous perimitral atrial tachycardias using an ultra-high resolution mapping system. The authors studied 32 consecutive perimitral atrial tachycardias, or PMATs, in 31 patients who underwent AT mapping and ablation using ultra-high resolution mapping system. The new mapping systems helped the authors to identify a 12-lead synchronous isoelectric interval in 15 of 46.9% PMATs, determine the coronary sinus activation, identify LA anterior slash septal wall low voltage areas, and slow conduction areas. Anterior or lateral posterior mitral isthmus linear block was successfully created without any complications in all. 25 concomitant ATs among 18 or 58.1% patients were also eliminated. During 20 months of follow-up, 28 or 90.3% patients were free from any atrial tachyarrhythmias. The authors conclude that an ultra-high resolution mapping system guided approach with identification of the individual tachycardia mechanism should be the preferred strategy to ablating perimitral atrial tachycardias. Up next is the effect of pacemaker implantation after transcaster aortic valve replacement on long and mid-term mortality. The authors followed 1,489 patients after transcaster aortic valve replacement, or TAVR, T-A-V-R. The patients were divided into three groups, those with no pacemaker implanted, pacemaker implanted before the procedure, and a pacemaker implanted post-procedure. Pacemaker implantation, regardless of its timing, was not associated with the mortality difference after 12 months. After 72 months, the patient with pre-procedural but not with post-procedural pacemaker implantation was associated with higher mortality. Pacing burden did not affect mortality. The authors conclude that post-procedural pacemaker was not associated with increased long-term mortality. This conclusion was not altered by ventricular pacing burden. The next paper is lead related superior vena cava syndrome, management and outcomes. The authors report 17 patients with superior vena cava syndrome. Among them, 13 or 76% underwent transvenous lead extraction and venoplasty. Three patients or 18% were treated with venoplasty alone, and one patient or 6% underwent surgical SVC reconstruction. In 10 patients or 59%, transvenous reimplantation was necessary. 
symptom resolution was achieved in all 17 patients and confirmed at both 6 and 12 months follow-up. There was no significant difference in the rate of complications associated with transvenous lead extraction for SVC syndrome versus control. The authors conclude that in patients with SVC syndrome, venoplasty and lead extraction are safe and effective for the resolution of symptoms and maintaining SVC patency. Coming up is association between regional distributions of SARS-CoV-2. Zero conversion and out of hospital sudden deaths during the first epidemic outbreak in New York. The authors studied the instance of out of hospital sudden deaths and percentage of positive SARS-CoV-2 antibody tests reported for the 176 zip codes of New York City. Correlation analysis showed a moderate positive correlation between the two. Regression analysis showed that the zero conversion to SARS-CoV-2 and out-of-hospital sudden deaths in 2019 were independent predictors for out-of-hospital sudden deaths during the first epidemic surge in New York City. This data suggests either a causality between the two syndromes or the presence of local determinants affecting both measures in a similar fashion. The following paper is titled "Cardiac Arrhythmias: A Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy: Results of Long-Time Monitoring." The authors implanted a subcutaneous loop recorder to 193 patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. A total of 6,494 ECG traces were recorded during the median follow-up of 36 months. Ictal heart rhythm and rate changes were detected in 143 patients, or 74%. The most common finding was ictal sinus tachycardia. Sinus bradycardia was observed in 13 patients, or 6.7%. Three patients had clinically relevant cardiac pulses of greater than six seconds, requiring a permanent pacemaker implantation. Five patients, or 2.6%, died suddenly. The authors conclude that ictal heart rhythm and rate changes occur in most of the patients during drug-resistant epilepsy. Clinically relevant cardiac events related to ictal and post-ictal periods are rare. No potentially malignant arrhythmias were detected in patients who died suddenly during the preceding follow-up period. Up next. Is differentiating hereditary arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy from cardiac sarcoidosis fulfilling 2010 ARVC task force criteria. Ten patients with cardiac sarcoidosis fulfilling, uh, fulfilling definite 2010 ARVC task force criteria were age and gender matched with ten genetically proven ARVC patients. The 2010 ARVC task force criteria did not reliably differentiate between the two diseases. Cardiac sarcoidosis patients presented with longer PR intervals, advanced AV block, and longer QRS duration, whereas T-wave inversions in the peripheral leads were more common in ARVC patients. Cardiac sarcoidosis patients presented with more ex- extensive LV involvement. And lower left ventricular ejection fraction, whereas ARVC patients 
at the larger RVOT. PET scan positivity was only present in cardiac sarcoidosis patients. These above findings can be used to differentiate ARVC from cardiac sarcoidosis. The next article is long QT syndrome type 1 and 2 patients respond differently to arrhythmic triggers, the TRICOR in vitro study. 9 LQT syndrome type 1 and 14 LQT syndrome type 2 patients were included. ECGs were recorded as participants 1 were exposed to a loud noise and 2 had their face immersed into cold water. In response to noise, the QTC prolongation was greater in long QT syndrome 2 than in long QT syndrome 1. Beta blocker blunted QTC prolongation. The heart rate and the QTC response to simulated diving was similar before beta blockers. After intake of beta blockers, there was more heart rate slowing in long QT syndrome 1 compared to long QT syndrome 2. These findings show that beta blockers reduced noise-induced QTC prolongation in long QT syndrome type 2 patients, thus demonstrating the protective effect of beta blockers. Coming up next is calcium signaling consequences of RYR2 mutations associated with CPVT1 introduced by CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing in human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes. Comparison of RYR2-R420Q, F24A3I, and Q4201R. The authors used human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes to evaluate the calcium signaling aberrancies associated with rounding receptor 2 or RYR2 mutations. These three mutations are known to be associated with type 1 CPVT. They found that unlike the wild-type myocytes, Mutant myocytes exhibit irregular, long-lasting, spatially wandering calcium sparks and aberrant calcium releases. These techniques allow them to study the sarcoplastic reticulum calcium leaks and contents in different mutations. These findings indicate that CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing of human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes provides a novel approach in studying CPVT1-associated RYR2 mutations and suggests that calcium signaling, aberrances, and drug sensitivities may vary depending on the mutation site. Next up is the effects of subcutaneous nerve stimulation with blindly inserted electrodes on ventricular rate control in canine model of persistent atrial fibrillation. The authors prospectively randomized 16 male and 15 female dogs with sustained atrial fibrillation into three groups, sham, 0.25 milliamp, 3.5 milliamp, for four weeks of subcutaneous nerve stimulation. The authors used blindly inserted subcutaneous electrodes for these experiments. 
They found that 3.5 milliamp subcutaneous nerve stimulation with blindly inserted electrodes can improve ventricular rate control, reduce atrial fibrosis, and partially improve LV ejection fraction in a canine model persistent AF. Sham and 0.25 milliamp stimulation do not have the same effects. Coming up is blood-based 8-hydroxy-2 deoxyguanosine level, a potential diagnostic biomarker for atrial fibrillation. Recent uh, research findings have revealed a key role of oxidative DNA damage in the pathogenesis of atrial fibrillation. Therefore, the circulating oxidative DNA damage marker 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, or 8-OHDG, may represent a biomarker for atrial fibrillation. The authors collected blood samples from control patients without AF history, patients with paroxysmal AF and persistent AF undergoing electrical cardioversion or pulmonary vein isolation, and patients with sinus rhythm undergoing cardiac surgery. Compared to the control group, Eight OHDG levels in the patient uh, in the patient groups gradually and significantly increased during arrhythmia pro, uh, progression. Eight OHDG levels in AF patients showing AF recurrence after pulmonary vein isolation treatment were significantly increased compared to patients without AF recurrence. Eight OHDG levels were significantly elevated in those showing post-operative AF compared to patients without post-operative AF. This data show that eight OHDG levels may represent a potential diagnostic biomarker for predicting AF recurrence after treatment. The next article is titled Critical Repolarization Gradients Determine the Induction of Reentry-Based Torsade Point Arrhythmia in models of long QT syndrome. The authors infused Sotalol originally or globally in seven isolated Langendorf blood-perfused Picards to create repolarization time heterogeneities. They found that polymorphic VTs were inducible at a critical combination of repolarization time and repolarization time heterogeneities. Short-lasting polymorphic VTs were maintained by focal activity, while longer-lasting polymorphic VTs by re-entry wandering along the interface between the two regions. Double potentials localize at the core of the re-entrant circuit and reflect phase singularities. These findings show that critical repolarization gradients determine the induction of re-entry-based torsade-pong arrhythmias in models of long QT syndrome. Next up is implant performance and retrieval of an atrial leadless pacemaker in sheep. The authors implanted a leadless pacemaker in sheep atria to study device retrieval and reimplantation. At 24 weeks, pacing capture threshold were low and stable for both the first device and the second device. The average retrieval time was 17 minutes. P-waves and impedances were stable and within an expected range for implant site and electrode design. Complications including one early dislodgement and one death attributed to a prototype retrieval tool. In this animal model study, an atrial leadless pacemaker can be easily implanted with excellent chronic patient pacing performance 
and is easily retrievable at six months. A second device can successfully be implanted with low chronic stable thresholds. These findings suggest that it is possible to extend the beneficial features of leadless pacemakers to atrial pacing. These original articles are followed by two contemporary review articles. The first one is titled Anticoagulation for Stroke Prevention in Patients with Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy and Atrial Fibrillation. The second one is titled Combined Epicardial and Endocardial Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation, Best Practices and Guide to Hybrid Convergent Procedures. There is a hands-on article titled Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion Using Intracardic Echocardiography. Dr. Stephen Huang wrote a viewpoint titled The Early Translational Research of Radiofrequency Caster Ablation as a second entry in our series of articles to celebrate the 30th year of RF ablation. The journal also publishes an article to remember and celebrate the life of Dr. John Gallagher a pioneer and a renowned mentor in cardiac electrophysiology. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Xian Chen.